0: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen.
1: See my Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free. I'd invite you to take the, uh, the Blue Pew Bible in the rack in front of you. And uh, it's on page 1001 if you're using one of those Blue Pew Bibles. Once again, it's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-4, through 4, and I think it's interesting, if you noticed in the bulletin, Darwin's sermon title is, The Final Word of God. And often, before we read the word, as I'm about to do in a second, we say, this is God's word. I think it's appropriate how, in the space of these four verses, it mentions that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Um, just an interesting uh, verse there. Read with me now Hebrews, or follow along as I read. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is God's word.
0: Let us pray together as we come to his word. Oh, gracious Lord, we thank you that we can feast upon Christ in worship. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you give yourself so freely at all times in our lives. You give yourself away to us and all that you are, all that you have, you deed over to us. You include us in what you have. You've won it for us through your precious blood, you reign over all things so that nothing can hinder you in bringing it to us. Lord, we who are impoverished by our own doing are enriched infinitely, enriched forever in you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that today you come to us to feed and nourish and cherish your church. Oh Lord, how we need it how we need your grace, how we need all that you are for every moment of every day, though we don't even recognize that. Make us to taste of the sweetness that is in you. Make us to taste the, great, the grace in you. Make us to see and taste your glory and magnificence, O oh Lord Jesus. Bless us, Lord. Bless us. For we are weak and helpless. Amen. <clears throat> Um, continuing in something is really, really difficult and probably no better illustration than uh, losing weight. Uh, imagine if you could count all the times people have lost weight, it would be more than the sands of the seashore or the stars in the sky. Like it would number, uh, that just in America, it would number more than, than the people in America, you know, the hundreds of millions of times. People have lost weight. And I think the last count was only 13 kept the weight off. You know, that's not that many, really, when you think about it. And I am certainly in the category of those who gained it back. And the whole issue, the whole problem, isn't it, in that particular thing is your motivation, right? Your desire, keeping a perspective, keeping a continuing, governing, propelling reason to do it. Because we can't keep that compelling reason, we just give up and we go back to where we were. And so many areas of our lives are, are like that. And Christianity, uh, is uh, there's a constant danger expressed in the Scriptures of falling away from the living God. Um, and we're, we're really told in Scripture that elders' work is not done until people die confessing Christ. you know, It's like, it's not so much that you've confessed Him and that you hold to Him. And it's not as though you can lose the salvation if you really have it, but you want to, to shepherd them in that narrow way that leads to eternal life so that in that final day they say, I believe in Christ. Continuing is so hard. And that's what this is about, this whole letter. Really, it's a letter because the last chapter has features of a letter but it, a lot of it's not doesn't sound like a letter. Uh, this first part doesn't begin like a letter it begins more like a sermon. So it really is kind of a sermon letter, a sermon exhortation. He calls it an exhortation in the last chapter. But it's written uh, the best we know to Jewish Christians perhaps in Italy, okay? Perhaps in Rome itself who themselves having Earlier, confessed Christ under great duress and suffering, were now under, after years of persecution, beginning to fall away and to go back to the politically safer religion of Judaism at the time. So, here they are turning away from Christ to Judaism, and he is setting forth something to give them that governing, propelling reason. To stay the course. And what is, what does he set forth in all of these chapters? Really, the better question, who does he set forth? It's Christ. You know, it's though the whole of this book is, this this exhortation, sermon, letter is to push forward and say, I present to you Christ. And really, for any of us, if you're sliding away from Christianity, if you're, you feel hardened or, or distant, you feel like the things of Christianity, things of the Word of God, are kind of falling on deaf ears now. You don't feel it. You, you have no emotion for it. It just feels distant, lifeless, uncaring. Always, ever, what you need, what I need... Is more of Christ. Always more of Christ. And He is the only one who can sustain you in any and all difficulty and and tragedy and struggle. And He must be, actually, He must be the reason you're here and no other reason ultimately. A lot of people, uh, we were in a downtown church in. Columbus, Mississippi, uh, 30,000 people, but there was the Methodist and the Presbyterian and the Baptist. And several times, uh, people dropped into the Presbyterian church, having moved from out of town, to check it out. But their checking it out was to see, where can I get the best contacts in town? Where's the best association? Where, where would I have the best standing in town, the, the best reputation in the community, you know, feeling their way as to where I could belong in this town? Which of these? Well, we were the smallest one, so we didn't get that many of those, you know, <laughs> of the three churches, <clears throat> but they would check us out anyway. Now, you can imagine in this day, if you're there for social contacts, okay, And somebody comes knocking on your door and says, Hey, uh, I noticed that you had visited uh, John Birch in prison the other day. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, I did. I I brought him some clothes. He didn't have any clothes. I brought him some food. He didn't have any food and visited him because he was alone and destitute. He said, well, let me tell you, you're going to jail too because of that association. In fact, you look at everything around you, it's going to be gone when you get out, if you get out. You may die there. So much for social contacts. you know. (laughs) Like, if you're there for social contacts, if you're there to get ahead in the community, if you're there for any other reason than for this Christ, then it's not worth it. There's no reason to be there. But it says of them earlier in their career as believers that they associated with those who confessed Christ in such a way that they did lose their possessions. They did visit them. They were associated and then they lost their stuff. But it said they saw the seizure of their property joyfully because of what they had in Christ. So, I'd say it's the only thing. He is all there is in Christianity, ultimately. And He must be why you are here. Your love of Christ, your desire for Christ, to know Him, to know, have more of Him, to worship Him, to reflect Him, to explore Him. It's Christ. And so, right from the beginning, the writer of Hebrews is just setting forth Christ. Now, in this particular passage, he's He's really setting forth Christ as the revealer of God. And how there has been all this revelation leading up to this point. But in this final day, the day that the prophet spoke of, this is the day of fulfillment. This is the day of the inauguration of the end times in Christ. At this time, he's speaking to us by his son. And that really governs this passage. Everything else is to support that. To say, his son has spoken, he has spoken in his son, and look who this son is through whom he has spoken. See, that's the feel of this. We must not ignore this final word of God because of the one through whom he speaks. So we're going to look first at just this idea of his speaking and then try to lay out point after point, of how He sets forth the glory of this Son. And with each of these, you see, we just keep underscoring, don't ignore Him. Don't ignore such a one. Don't turn away from Him. Well, it's interesting how it says, He says, God spoke in many times and many ways uh, to our fathers. In these last days, He's spoken to us. So, Scripture, and of course he's speaking here ultimately in terms of Scripture. Scripture is nothing less, nothing different than God speaking always. God's speaking. And no matter how it comes to us, this is a revelation of God not remaining silent, God taking the initiative and revealing himself constantly, and then finally in this complete way in his Son. So, God is unveiling himself to his creation, to his creatures, progressively into this final, full revelation in Christ. And it shows how he does care for us and how he relates to us in his word. And it's interesting how the the writer of Hebrews will quote the Old Testament and he makes it present tense. The Holy Spirit says, see, it's a present word to us. Like he says in chapter four, it's living and active, like a sword that divides between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. So this word is God's, uh, His desire to make known Himself to us. And in the last, in chapter twelve, He says, "Don't refuse this God who is speaking." As Antony said, Athanasius quotes this, he says, Don't be astonished if an emperor writes to us, for he's a man, because uh, the uh, hermit's had even emperors writing to them in the day, okay? And so many people were impressed with this, you know, that an emperor would write somebody like Antony. He says, don't be astonished if an emperor writes to us for he is a man, but rather wonder that God wrote the law for men and has spoken to us through his own son. I read that Obama had uh, written back to a lady who had written to him about her financial situation And she got this handwritten letter from President Obama, and she actually ended up selling the letter for $7,000, okay, (laughs) so that she could have a down payment for her house and to pay some medical bills. So that was a very valuable letter, all right, from an emperor. She sold it to an autograph dealer for $7,000. Well, brothers and sisters, one thing that is said right here, God has God has continued to speak over and over and finally in this complete way in his Son and notice the way He describes it in many. Times it perhaps would even be better translated in many different portions. Uh, there's an emphasis on the different parts by which God spoke His Word, the kind of fragmentary way it came at us, and all of these different forms, and then finally, this complete climactic speaking uh, through His Son. So there's the idea of it's not together yet, it's not complete yet, finally. This is what everything was pointing to. It's as though you were trying to describe in many, many words, with many, many pictures and analogies, the Grand Canyon. And just word after word after word, and finally, you're looking at it. You're looking at it. And that's some of the idea here of all this leading up. In fact, that all of this was really pointing to, it had its final purpose to set forth the sun. The final revelation in him. And so all of these things pointing to this one son, and notice the contract, the contrast, we were he spoke by the prophets, but now he's speaking by not the son, a son. Doesn't mean that there are many sons, but the idea is one who is a son. So there were prophets, but now the Lord of the prophets has spoken. Not these servants, but the Son Himself has has spoken. That's the contrast here. The ultimate revelation in Christ Himself. And it's not apparent on the out, when you first look at it, but verse 4 seems to kind of come out of nowhere, having as, become as much superior to angels. Well, who, why did angels come in suddenly? Well, the idea is that angels were seen as the means of revelation to Moses. You can see this in many references in uh, like Acts 7 and Galatians 3, that angels were the mediators of the revelation to Moses. That's why later in chapter 2, he has the contrast in verse 2, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, etc., how shall we escape if we neglect this word, That came from the Lord. So the contrast in verse four is is the same kind of contrast as in verse one. So that the many, uh, the many fragmentary, the many portions and ways that he spoke to our fathers, which was mediated by angels, now is cast aside. Not cast aside, but has its final fulfillment. Now he's spoken in the Son Himself, and so the revelation of God. This beautiful fabric, this rainbow and spectrum of truth has finally seen its fulfillment. It's centered on Christ. It's summarized by Christ. It's concentrated on Him. All the roads of revelation lead up to Christ. And you cannot, to, to ignore Christ is then to throw all those lines away. All that means of revelation, those means have no, no meaning whatsoever whatsoever. All those roads mean nothing if you don't come to where they were leading. Because the point of all of it is Christ Himself. And so in these final days, He's spoken to us in His Son. Now, the point is this. Are you going to ignore this God who has spoken in His Son? So much of this is kind of like what God said on the Mount of Transfiguration when, if you're unfamiliar with that, three of the disciples were with Jesus, suddenly his whole body became like lightning in the sun and he shone forth with light. The glory cloud of God, similar to what was on the Mount of uh, with the Ten Commandments, that kind of glory cloud came and surrounded them and they heard a voice and it said, this is my son, hear him. And that's kind of the feel of this. This is my son. Everything led up to him. I'm putting all of it through him. Hear him. This is God coming to us. To reject Christ, to reject Christ's word, is to uh, dishonor God and reject God himself and all that he has to say. Everything. Just pack up the whole scripture. Old and New Testament, if you reject Christ, because He has spoken to us in His Son. Now, mentioning sonship leads naturally to the idea of heirship, which is the next phrase. Whom He appointed heir of all things. And if, here again, don't ignore Him because He's the heir of all things. Don't ignore Him. He has everything. Literally. Really. Really. He has everything. Don't ignore this Son through whom the Father speaks. This is, all commentators would agree that this is based on Psalm 2, verse 8, where we read of of God speaking to His Son, "'Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession.'" And so to say that he's an heir, of course, with God, God's not going to die and then someday he inherits it. But it's, it's a way to say that he is presently the possessor or we would say the proprietor of these things. He, is the, he has been made the proprietor of the universe, this son. He's given all things into the hand of his son. The whole universe, everything that's alive, everything that's inanimate, all the interworkings of it, all of it is His. And here's the point. No good, no ultimate good can be found outside of Christ because it's all found in Christ. We, we were originally the sons of God, but in Adam we turned away from God and we lost the inheritance of all good things. We lost all of those things. And we will be destitute of all good things unless we have an interest in Christ. Unless we belong to Him and He belongs to us. And so, He took on Himself, coming and be, becoming a man, and we'll learn more about this in chapter 2 because He really enlarges on this in verses 5 and following. But We're just touching on it. We were alienated against God and deprived of all of these blessings and good things. And so he took on our humanity and he restored those things to all those who will trust in him. And we have them when we are admitted into fellowship with Christ, which is all of grace. And so we who are destitute are made wealthy in Christ because he has all things. He's the heir of all. He has the title of all. And if you reject His Son, you have no hope of anything. And that's why the picture of hell and of judgment is being shut out into outer darkness, shut out of fellowship, uh, torn away from the feast of the people of God because it is to be found in Christ. There is one Son. There is one heir. He uh, He has inherited... All of his redeemed people, and he has inherited the, the universe that is renewed by virtue of his work. This is his inheritance. And apart from him, there's no sonship, there's no heirship. So how can we not how can we reject this one who's the heir of all things? I think this is why Paul says in First Corinthians 3, all things are yours. The world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. As Hughes says, truly, Christ is the door that opens the whole universe to us. Will you ignore him? Will you throw away the whole universe that is deeded to to Christ and all those that belong to him? He's the heir of all things. He's spoken to us by his Son who is the heir of all things. And having spoken about his being the heir of all things, naturally you think about, and by the way, it's appropriate that he would be the heir of all things because he's the creator of all things. (laughs) Okay, He's the one who brought all things into existence from the beginning. He is precisely the heir because he was the very mediator of creation. The very one by whom God created all things. Are you going to ignore the one who created the world through whom now God speaks? And then he gets closer and closer to the majesty of this one. If he's the one who created all things, the created the world, then you're brushing right up to, wait a minute, he must have pre-existence with the Father. He must be coexistent with with the Father. He is outside of creation. He is none other than God Himself who has come in the flesh. And so He says in verse 3, He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. This this means the, the radiance of something that's shining forth from a source of light. And so as the radiance of the sun reaches the earth, Christ is the glorious light of God that shines into our hearts. That's the picture given us in 2 Corinthians. That is the glory of Christ who is the image of God that shines into our hearts. And so what we get of the beauty of God comes through Christ and Calvin says that we have no other way. We are blind to that glory. We can't get at that glory except in, in, in no other way except by Christ. And of course, if he's the unique one who unveils the glory of God, if he's the exact imprint of his nature, the very stamp of his nature, it's like stamping a coin or coin or a, a, a die or seal. And And when it says... The imprint of His nature, it means the very substance of God. What God really is, is made manifest in Christ. When you have Christ, you have God. To see the Son is to see what the Father is like. He's trying to set forth the exact correspondence between the two. It's like when Jesus said in John 14, He who has seen me has seen the Father. He shines with the Father's glory He expresses in Himself the Father's person. Here's the way God would have Himself be known. If you have the Son, you have me. And so we must make use of these titles. If He is this glory, if He is this imprint, then we embrace Him and know that we cannot have the Father, we cannot have His light and glory unless we have Christ That's where he's to be found. If you're seeking for God, you're on a blind trail unless you're seeking for Christ. Because Christ is the way he's made himself known. How can we reject the word of the one who is the radiance of his glory? Now, I wrote some words in our study on John on this very idea of you have me, you have the Father... He's the way to have the Father. If we see Jesus, we've seen the Father. If we know Jesus, we know the Father. If the Father dwells in the Son, and when we have the Son, we have the Father. The Father is embraced as soon as the Son is embraced. And so when He says, I'm the way, you could say, when He says, uh, show us the way, uh, Jesus says, I am the way, not, Follow me and I'll take you there. Follow me and I'll show you the way. I am the way. It's as though he says, you're already there. You have him in that fact that you have me. There's nowhere else to go to get God but in Christ. And so, as Hoskins says, while being the guide or the way, he doesn't guide to what is beyond himself. Okay. He's the way to God because when you have Him, you have the Father. So the writer of Hebrews, saying to these people who are being threatened to abandon Christ, saying, then you will abandon God altogether. You will abandon any hope of God if you abandon Jesus Christ. And he goes on, of course, if if he's intimately related to God by being this revealer of his nature, he's intimately related to the creation because he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And this word, it's an active word. It's the word of carrying something. Bringing it forward to its proposed end or its purposed end. Its final attainment. Its dynamic, you see, in the way he carries forth the the creation that he himself has made. And this word, the, the, the phrase word here is the same phrase or the same term that's used later in Hebrews 11, which says God made the world, made creation by his word. And so the father, the God makes the world by his word. The son upholds the world by his word. And one writer says he upholds the word. This was Erasmus actually with the nod of his power. I love that. To indicate it's not difficult for him to uphold the whole universe. It's just kind of like this. And the whole universe is upheld. It's not hard. It's done constantly. Everything that's living is living because of his power. Every feature of every substance that you see, this leaf, this book, this microphone, the silicon on your computer works because... He is upholding all things, always. You are constantly in the immediate presence of the upholder of all things, and it is the Son of God and His absolute power. He's the nucleus of creation in that sense. This is the function of nothing else than God Himself. And this One who upholds all things who is carrying the whole of creation forward to its purposed end, is the very one who has brought the creation forward to this point where He made purification of sins. It was in His hands as the Lord of creation to bring forward the whole world to that point when He would make purification of sins. And this is a powerful word because the same word is used in verse 2, that He made the world. Here, He made purification. The creator who made the world is the creator and sustainer of the universe who made purification by his absolute power. And the effectiveness of this purification, this cleansing for sins, is indicated by the fact that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We don't have time to enlarge on it, but this is the... The most glorious way to set forth his supreme authority, the highest honor and dignity, incomparable su- comparable surpassing glory at the right hand of the majesty. It means he shares the very throne of God. He shares the very rule of the world with God. He is, of course, God himself. And it indicates that he has finished this work. He sat down. He's resting in full power, ruling over the world. It means that he has completed the work. The, the Old Testament priests were constantly standing. They never sat down as an indication that the atonement is not completed. Atonement is not completed. And when the high priest went in to offer the uh, atonement once a year, then he retired after that. He was gone. This high priest, when he makes atonement, he is brought into the very presence of the Father to indicate you you have accomplished salvation. You have accomplished forgiveness. You have accomplished putting away sin, the cleansing of sin. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, are you going to ignore this one? Are you going to ignore this one through whom God has spoken and through whom God saves us? Are you going to come to God and say, you know, I understand what you've done. You've spoken through your son. He's the one that upholds the whole of the universe. He's the one that created the world. He's the one that makes purification of sins. And apparently, God, in your mind, all of that was necessary to take care of sins. But... I'm just going to bank on my own righteousness, if you don't mind. You know, imagine. Are you just telling God? You know, you really don't know how things work, do you? You think it required the sacrifice of your son. But I'm just going to depend on good old me to get me there. It is God who you can see the kind of infinite exertion here, okay? The infinite exertion to set forth one who would completely reveal His beauty and glory, particularly at the point in His great humiliation, the purification of sins, His death on the cross, that's when glory shone its brightest. Because it's the glory of a God who made the worlds, against whom we sin, who would actually send His Son to die for us. And so the good news for us, though we're helpless in our sin, though we're broken in our sin, though we're fixed in our habits and tendencies to sin, and we can't do anything about it, and if we think, well, tomorrow I'm going to do better, it becomes worse tomorrow, and it makes it worse every day after that. More sin to be forgiven of if you're trying to get there on your own. But the good news is God has gone to infinite lengths to provide for you a purification, a cleansing of sin, and to give you one through whom He will reveal His beauty and glory to you. None other than the creator and sustainer of the world. None other than the one who is ruling all things to bring them to their final end. And that means for you, no matter what you go through, if He is sustaining and carrying forth the world, He will sustain you. And He will sustain and govern every circumstance into which you enter so that it will have its accomplished end of His purpose and no evil purpose. It's the only safe place in the world is under the care of this Lord. It's the only safety in the world to be under the care of this one who has all things in His hands. And can you not trust Him that He would go to such lengths and leave such heights to subject Himself to such depths to save you and rescue you? May we hear Him as God the Father said that on that night, this is my Son. Hear Him. Hear Him. Let us pray. O oh Lord, in your grace and mercy, you've come to us. You've spoken in so many ways leading up to this final setting forth of your beauty and glory in your own Son. The one who made all things, the one who sustain all th- sustains all things. And Lord, He is now the heir of all things. Made heir because of what He has accomplished in His death. As He's exalted to your right hand as a reward for His great accomplishment on the cross. He has made heir of all things. And now He is offered to us in all that He has. Oh Lord, may we rejoice this morning as we come to this symbol of his death, this symbol of restored fellowship, this symbol of intimacy with God, this symbol of being in the presence of God no matter what our sins have been because Christ has made purification and he is Lord and nothing can stop him from imparting his life to us, his his strength to us, his continual character becoming more and more a part of us so that we are set free to give ourselves away to others. We are set free to enjoy your presence and favor in the midst of the most horrible things that may happen to us. And nothing can stop you from being kind to your people. Nothing can stop sustaining your people in the midst of all that they will go through, because you are Lord. And Lord, if we lose every single thing in this world, every relationship, all our possessions and our life itself, we are heirs of all things because we belong to the heir of all things. We praise you that nothing can touch that inheritance that is laid up for your people all that we have in this precious one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us, Lord. Bless us that we may embrace Him heartily, joyfully, throughout our lives. And may this vision of His beauty sustain us to the end. It is in His name we pray.
1: Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian.
0: foray, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away, won't you chase my fears away?